actually say it the very first day of class. It's my first sentence after welcoming them to class. I tell them that in five years, they probably won't be using a single tool, hmm. technique, activity, concept that I'm teaching them at all. And it takes them aback. You know, they wonder yeah. why are we paying tuition <laughs> that I roll right into what I hope you learn is an enthusiasm for learning, a respect for the opinions of others, the importance of finding a mentor who holds you accountable. Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer-centric. But to be truly customer-centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working, not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. In this episode, I have with me Molly Raybert. Molly is an Associate Professor of Marketing and Director of the Center of Teaching Effectiveness for the Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas. Molly has over 30 years of teaching experience and is the recipient of the Toppin Nation Marketing Faculty Award. I've known Molly for years and her passion for ensuring her students get the best learning experience is unsurpassed. In this episode, Molly and I discuss her approach to learning, the importance of curiosity, and foundational qualities likely to shape future marketing thought leaders. Let's listen in. So, hey, Molly, it's so great to see you today, and thanks for joining our program. I'm delighted, Andy. This is the highlight of my week. Excellent. Well, I tell you what, uh, you have been such an influence and inspiration for me in how you approach your job in marketing as a, as a faculty leader, teacher, in a space that I know is really dynamic and difficult. But uh, I'm just really curious, like, take me to that moment when you knew this is what you wanted to do. You know, it's kind of an interesting story because I did not apply for my first teaching job. A man that I'd been a graduate assistant for applied on my behalf and even wrote a fake cover letter from me to a university in Virginia saying that I was applying for the job. And to me, I look back on that moment of when they called to offer me the job and I had to explain, I don't even know where you are. James Madison University in Virginia, I'm in Oklahoma. Um, and when I realized the power of a faculty member to see a future for me that I had never considered and to open that door, I think that was the moment I just thought, whether I'm good at it or not, I could never imagine a better job in terms of impacting other people. You know, it's funny that you bring that up in terms of you were kind of pointed a direction from someone else that you didn't necessarily see yourself. And right. I got to believe that you probably serve that role for a lot of students um, in your class. And was thinking about how many successful students you've had that are captains of their uh, field at lead in marketing or CEO, as you look back, um, how have you spotted, or were you able to spot some of those early talented folks in your class, or do they have any kind of shared traits that you see in a class and say, you know what, I need to inspire them to go this direction maybe? 
you know, with marketing, our profession being so much storytelling, I can't really mm. separate the trait from the person I first learned it from. So if it's okay, I'll answer in that way. I can yeah, remember yeah. Heather Nelson was my student in 1993, and I had never met a student that on paper had every reason to fail. No family resources, dysfunctional background. She says this in public. It's not yeah. my um, misstating yeah. it. And she showed me the importance of an absolute unwillingness to take no for an answer. Wow. From the minute she it was her first day in my class, she wanted to know how it applied to the real world. She didn't care about the theory. What did this mean for business? And she would push. Yeah. And I watched her now for over a quarter of a century impact others and not take no for an answer. Last year, um, she was selected That's as great. the Arkansas Small Business Person of the Year. Yeah. And I think it comes from that. Yeah. Um, I had Sophia Bailey in 2016 and I'm obsessed with Sophia, but yeah. what I learned from, I watched her and she was so good at gathering information from other people and being open to other ideas and wanting to personally grow and being willing to grow people around her. I think you might mm. agree that that's a fairly yeah. rare trait, being yeah. willing to allow others to succeed. And I see that trait, once I've recognized it in her, I see how many other people can have used that to their yeah. success. Yeah. A couple more that come to mind, Jesse Lane, who I think was my first student in 2009, that I really saw this daily enthusiasm for learning. Oh. It didn't matter what the setting was. He was using it as an opportunity to learn and has continued to do that. And um, I hate to round out with yeah. one of my own, but Jonah, I can remember when Jonah finished my class, he posted something on LinkedIn where he said he'd spent his whole life hearing that you needed to be independent and make your own decisions and not rely on others. And that he really learned through my class, the importance of mentors and mentoring mm -hmm. and how that it's okay to soak up from others and then turn around and spread that knowledge to those around you. And I'd never really thought of it in those terms. I do remember talking to my kids about the importance of being independent so to learn from Jonah that add-on about, yeah. yes, but <laughs> independence yeah. also comes with the respect for others' opinions was really helpful. So I'd say those four things really stand out to me. You know, what strikes me about all four of those answers is that, you know, you look at marketing and how complicated it can be and the, mm -hmm. how dynamic it is, and there's a method to it, and there's a mindset. And, and what you didn't say was they just showed a real mastery of the methods of marketing. Mm -hmm. What you just described really were curiosity, you know, the question asking, uh, the resiliency to not to not take no as an answer. And those really speak to the mindset of what it takes to be a good marketer, which I found to be, over my career, probably more important than just actually the method, that ability to have empathy toward others, as you mentioned with Jonah and wanting them right. to succeed uh, in building mentorships. And so do you teach that? I mean, how do you look at this idea of a mindset and method? Uh, because they do go together. And I guess the older I get and the more I've been around, um, I really appreciate for those that have that mindset that helps mm -hmm. set them apart. I actually say it the very first day of class. It's my first sentence after welcoming them to class. 
I tell them that in five years, they probably won't be using a single tool, hmm. technique, activity, concept that I'm teaching them at all. And it takes them aback. You know, they wonder yeah. why are we paying tuition <laughs> that I roll right into what I hope you learn is an enthusiasm for learning, a respect for the opinions of others, the importance of finding a mentor who holds you accountable. And I, I go through my checklist yeah. and reinforce that with different things we do along the semester and then recap it at the end with a letter that puts all of that in writing. Wow. I didn't realize that. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's a, a great way to teach. And it's probably something they didn't, like you said, they didn't expect that. Because mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of students probably look like, is this going to be on the test? And exactly. How do you put that on the test? You know, it is hard to do, but I do a lot of hands on activities in the class. Yeah. And if they don't have an enthusiasm for learning, let's say they're just a student that has gotten by all these years because they test well. Mm. If they don't really do well, then I think my class separates that because they have to engage in the activities we're doing. It's an all or nothing on your CCLI observation yeah. badge that you so graciously yeah. offered my students. Mm -hmm. If they completed 10 of the 11 activities, they received a zero. Oh my gosh. They wow, had yeah. to complete all 11 yep. to get the points for yep. it. And I, I love that resilience, persistency, you know, so making sure my metric is matching what I'm wanting to drive home is the lesson. Yeah. And, you know, before we started uh, this conversation, we we're talking a little bit about how you were preparing for final exams and that mm -hmm. it's all essay based, which I'm thinking, boy, that's a lot of extra work on your part than grading a, a test. But it sounds like that's related a bit to what you're saying in terms of the extra effort to do essays. It's it's mm -hmm. a bit more intimidating, I would think, as a student, but it does make you participate than just being a good test taker, right? Right. And I really like that I'm constantly sending that message that yeah. taking a test well is wonderful. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to be a great test taker, standardized yeah. tests, but that doesn't mean necessarily that I'm going to be great at my job. Yeah. And I think it's important that they learn from day one that they've held on tight to this metric for their whole lives, K through 12 and now in college. And that metric's disappearing and they better learn quickly to find other ways yeah. to evaluate their performance. Yeah, that's that's really, really great. Um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk mm -hmm. about how marketing is changing a bit, um, you know, with this whole area of customer journey, customer experience, that seems to be an influence on it, but then also data privacy, uh, mm -hmm. you know, security and the cultural uh, fragmentation that we have to market inside. What are some of the big challenges you feel marketing needs to be addressing today and how this is all evolving and changing is such a dynamic space? You know, how I see it, um, looking back across 31 years here at the U of A and years at some universities before this, is that we've had a lot of things that have come and gone. Like, you remember the heyday of the QR codes. Oh, yeah. Everyone wanted to jump on board for one hot minute. Then they died. Now they're resurfacing. Yep. You know, I see this whole idea of customer centricity as... Mm -hmm so different from that. It's mm. almost a, a paradigm in and of itself. It's a shift in how we do things that has been there all along, but it's been intentionally growing with every single week. 
And now we sit at this perfect storm of technology, yeah. amplified voices on the internet, customers demanding more, yeah. customers having these voices to say what they love and what they don't love. These, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, cultural fragmentation and this, I look at that and think we somehow have gotten to a point in society where we feel the need to voice our opinion about everything mm. from green beans to politics. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's a perfect storm. It's all of these things together. But I think it means that that of truly understanding the customer and the role mm. that we play in their lives has never been more important. Yes. I, I just view it as this overarching theme and you've played a big role in that. Because you said to me a couple of years ago, how do you fold the customer journey into your class? Yeah. And I said, wow, I think I'll use it as a framework for the whole semester. And I wouldn't have done that if it yeah. weren't for you saying, right. how does this play in? Yeah. Well, that's, that, that's fantastic. And I love the fact you guys are taking on a deeper understanding of the customer journey because you can't hardly go anywhere in marketing today without having some kind of understanding of what that means. And I do mm -hmm. think it gives the U of A grads, the, the marketing students you're teaching, a leg up in the workforce because it's an area that um, you, it's now really becoming embedded into the marketing function mm -hmm. in a pretty significant way. You know, one of the things, Molly, that I'm seeing in a mark is the marketing profession continues to evolve somewhat is um, the marketing or the marketer, the CMOs being asked to, to weigh in on a lot of decisions that have um, have to do with probably company purpose, brand purpose, mm -hmm. more so than ever before, because you can't stay neutral. I mean, the, the cultural forces, the politics, the world forces you and the transparency, you know, pulls mm -hmm. you out to say, you know, what do you believe to be true and, and what, what's important and, uh, ESG, things of that nature mm -hmm. all become part of your marketing, uh, environment that you have to live with and lead in. And and that's not a traditional curriculum of how do you define purpose as part of a marketing. It might be somewhat in the business, uh, more management class, maybe, I don't know. But, but companies do look to the marketing leadership for leadership in this space and, and how to cut through. How has that become a part of what you teach to the students? It is absolutely a part of my class. And I build it in around... I start with identity theory. Um, mm. Americus Reed at Wharton is somebody I read his work wow. every single day. I'm such a huge fan of what he's done and how he talks about brands as being part of your identity, mm. that being a competitive advantage over brands that are not loosely connected or that are loosely connected to you. Yeah. So I start by having students identify their values. They have to actually make a visual of a brand that's so closely part of their purpose, their identity. And then I move them into Jim Stingle's work, P&G yeah. and purpose. Yeah. And then just last week, we looked at the recent uh, work by Byron Sharp, where he said, purpose is the death of brands. They, it's yeah. our demise. And uh, one of their essays that they'll be writing in my class um, on an exam is picking a side on that explaining those two viewpoints and saying what they believe as a consumer is, um, as a marketing major, is important to them. 
I love that. You know, and this is the thing that that I always get asked about from a marketing perspective is the, you know, what's the latest uh, kind of marketing trends and who's saying what. And honestly, there's so many voices out there Hmm. um, saying different things with a lot of conviction. And you have to be able to weigh and and use the thinking skills, develop your own first principle thinking Mm -hmm. to be able to decide that. And that's what I like about what you're doing is you really put two different views together and, and have them think through what, what, what do you believe and why do you, more so, why do you believe it? Because the, the, recently I was on a panel with other CMOs and they were asking, you know, is the industry lacking in creativity? Have we lost that? And as the most important thing we need to bring back. And I said, no, I think the biggest thing we're losing is conviction. Mm-hmm. And in conviction based on first principle understanding of how things really work. And that's what I love about how you do that. And, and how often do you do that? You bring two very different views together and, and and, and you're not really giving them the answer. You're giving them the question. Right. I would say we do it with every module that we mm. cover. And I think maybe even more importantly, because these are strangers to them. They, yep. um, Americus Reed has been kind yep. enough to interact with my students on LinkedIn, but they've never met him. Yep. They haven't met you in person. Mm-hmm. They have by Zoom. Thank you yeah. so much for doing yeah. that. Fun. Um, but I bring it back to the idea of, thinking how often they in their families or in their living arrangements, they have people that have different points of view and how they need to decide who they trust, which information they trust, who's the one that always exaggerates, who's the one that leads you down a path to trouble, because that's what they'll face in the corporate place, not just disagreements of thought leaders, but understanding as they step into the corporate world, they have to decide who they're following. Yes. And who they're asking to follow them. Yes. And, and a lot of these voices have a bit of truth in them, right? I mm-hmm. mean, no one's just t- total out on left field, but it's the part they're leaving out, perhaps, or the other yes. side of an argument in order to advance their point of view that you have to be really good at listening and, and picking that out. Uh, this will feel a little bit out of left field, but I'm just curious. Uh, I've been asked quite a bit, like, what are you reading lately and such? And um, the answers I give back, I most always is fiction and -hmm. the importance of reading fiction to understand how to be a good marketer. Uh, Recently, I just read, again, uh, Master and Man by Tolstoy. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and the reason that's such a good short story essay is it's really about a guy that uh, is an entrepreneur and is driven as an entrepreneur to achieve this thing, which ends up getting him killed, but uh, and, and blindly, you know, following that ambition. Where, how does fiction, for those that are wanting to know what's Molly reading, but I mean, mm-hmm. how does fiction play into um, thinking about becoming a better marketer? Okay, you may just want to edit out my long response because from my earliest moments, my dad was a small businessman and I asked him, a question. I think it was all my friends are getting allowances. Why am I not getting an allowance? And he handed me a book called A Message to Garcia. And he said, you read this and then decide if the right thing as a parent is to give you an allowance. So that was probably my earliest memory of a book being the answer to something. I use fiction. I read every single night. It's our whole family, avid readers. And um, I think reading fiction and nonfiction and sharing it with the class is such an important tool. 
in the summer, I teach a class um, in Italy that's on the intersection of business in China, Italy, and Sub-Saharan Africa. And I have them read stories about child soldiers that mm. because I don't think they can understand business yes. in a setting without reading a fictional work about a yeah. child soldier. So um, my first day of class this semester, I made them read How Will You Measure Your Life, the HBR article. Life. Love it has nothing to do with marketing, but it has everything to do with yeah. marketing. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure if you watched Colin Powell's funeral, but mm. his son's eulogy mm. was one of the most compelling narratives I have heard in years. He, he laid out this idea of resume virtues and eulogy virtues that were so thought provoking and mm. I played it for my students. In a senior-level marketing class, we watched a 10-minute eulogy of a stranger's funeral. So yeah. um, I think fiction, eulogies, HBR yeah. articles that are unrelated, stories of life in a place are just as important as reading something about a specific concept. I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And and what I like about fiction is really good fiction uh, has um, al always uh, an element of story that has mm -hmm. an evolution of plot, evolution of character. And that's human that's human life. That's the human truths that you're after and reflect that. I know one of the most popular courses in the Harvard Business School uh, program is a study on remains of the day. It's a wow. uh, it's a just taking that one book of fiction and the life story that comes through and the human truths that emerge through that story is one that I think any good marketer at, at the end of the day, you are storytelling mm -hmm. and you have to understand the hero's journey, the, the archetype of a good story so that you can move people forward in emotion uh, and character development. I mean, you're developing a brand character. And so right. those so, things always get there, right? And, who is your favorite fiction author? Uh, well, uh, it, it changes right now. It's Chekhov. Yes. And so I've been reading a lot. I just think those Russian writers uh, pre Stalin um, were just so good at story. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is going to be sound kind of sad. And we may want to edit this out. But uh, the Gulag Archipelago mm -hmm. is one that I've been fascinated by because of just how crazy uh, things got. You would never think people were capable of cer certain things until you read that um, by Schultz and Eitzen. And so, uh, but for me, those Russian writers like Chekhov and Tolstoy, mm -hmm. uh, pre-Stalin period, um, there, there's something about how they could reveal character and reveal humanity without being over the top or heavy handed through, through really the power of observation of details. Little details um, can bring a character to life uh, and, and really show what someone's thinking, which I think is so critical as a skill in marketing, if you're going to do content marketing or, or, or whatever, you, you to be able to find and explain and talk with language, mm -hmm. the things that matter in those little details that reveal something bigger and let your imagination fill in the gaps than being so explicit and tactical on everything we do. So I, I think it's, it's a great way to develop your craft. If you recommended one book for someone to read, what's, what's that top list? Wow. Fiction, okay. Uh, 
I, you know, I, I have to go back to Remains of the Day. I, I really think, and, and if you want to watch the movie with Anthony Hopkins, go go for that too. But I mean, it's uh, if you don't like to read. But I think the the life stories in that of of you know, here's a guy as a servant dedicated his whole life to something that may not have been meaningful, mm-hmm. and you know, the you know, was his mass was it worth it? Uh, and did it have? Did his life have purpose if his master was, um, uh, you know, a Nazi a sympathizer? And so it just raised a lot of questions about what you put your life toward, and you know what you value. And so I think that's that's going to be one of my top. How about how about you? Mine's um, Bonhoeffer. Mm. Have you read this? It's by yeah. Eric Metaxas. Yeah. I think I'm looking over at my shelf because I think I have four copies of it here yeah. in the office. And I think what I loved about it was that lost art of discussion and dialogue when you're learning what's important to you and mm. you sit down and talk to people and it's not arguments, it's debating, Yeah, but there's listening involved. Mm-hmm. And we seem to have moved so far away from it. And um, Eric Metaxas, I also think is just a great marketer because yeah. he wrote the big Bonhoeffer book, which I love. Yeah. That's my yeah. favorite. I will have to go back and reread that. Well, go he has ahead. a condensed version. Then he has an even shorter version of Seven Great Men where he's condensed Bonhoeffer into 30 pages. And oh the fact that he understands the market to yeah. know that there are three different kinds of readers yeah. also is just. Okay. Of, now you've got my interest up. You've got my interest I'll up. I'll send it to you. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you know, I, the secret to becoming a great marketer, I think, is to learn to ask great questions, mm-hmm. be empathetic, be curious, um, and obviously a life learner. What other things do you think are, are important characteristics to to really do well in marketing in today's world? Um, I can say, really, for my job in particular, I think one of the most important things, and maybe this translates into the marketing industry mm-hmm. as well, is just understanding the people around you, having Mm. empathy for them, or at least respect for their opinion. I had a student write me a letter today that said she felt certain that she was receiving the lowest grade in my class of all my students, but she had never felt so respected by a teacher and that it fueled her. And I just, I really take all of that. I take all these letters to heart because It's somebody that um, knows that I care about what they're doing. And I think that I've learned that from people that I've worked with here and great role models like you. Hmm. And I think that that transcends any workplace as well. Just the idea that you can encourage others by when they know that you care about them. Yeah. That may be a little more macro than what you're looking no for no no i mean i i think um what people don't understand is as you said like everything you're going to learn about marketing is going to probably change and evolve in a very short amount of time if you're talking the technical sme version of a great mm-hmm. marketer but what pulls you through that is the, the, what i like about marketing is there's so much uncertainty that you can't navigate it by just what you learned yesterday. I mean, yeah. you've got to develop the skills of first principle understanding of what makes the world work, what engages mm-hmm. people, why does it engage people? Um, you know, what is it about our human condition that causes us to reach and buy that or not buy it? And and I think those are those come from just being you know 
a good human, a good right. human being, right? And then learning that. And um, I think that's absolutely at the core of it. Uh, with so much data science and technology, uh, it, there's got to be a counterbalance to that. And you do have to mm-hmm. probably be more understanding of what data science can do for you than ever. But I don't think AI is going to produce the quite the epiphanies and insights that a person that's well-read is going mm-hmm. to uh, find on their own. I agree completely. And well-read and somebody that's willing to share their life experiences and the mistakes they've made. I have a, a great guest speaker, Jeff Metzner from oh, Procter & Gamble. Yeah. And he will, he walked my through my students through what he called a bust with a product at Procter & Gamble. He, the game he played is Boomer Bust. Oh, I love he, it. He lays out a product and then he asks the students to guess if it was a boom or a bust and then he walks them through it after they defend their answer. Yeah. And then he was walking through one bust at the end of which he said he wanted them to know this was his mistake. He owned oh, I love this. It. And for the students to see somebody of his caliber own a mistake and then to see that Procter & Gamble believed in him so much that they you know, continued um, supporting him in his career. What a powerful message to send. I, I love mean, that. AI isn't going to do that for us. Nope, nope. As I said before, I've never seen a spreadsheet give up a good insight. It just, you just don't see it in, a, no. in there at all. Um, you've, um, you've do more as a fact, I don't know a number of, I know a few faculty member in the U of A, uh, but I don't know anybody that outworks you in terms of what you're able to do. And you're choosing things uh, and approach to teaching that takes a high touch, high care structure, um, which really engages with students at levels I've never seen before. I'm sure there's going to be some curious and I'm curious. And I get this question asked of myself as well is like, how do you do it? Like, how do you structure your day, your life to get, some people can get so much out of a 24 hours and still stay sane. Others don't stay sane, but I mean, do you have any secrets on how to think about time and and your approach that um, we could learn from? Well, I think one, I'm very organized. My husband jokes that I alphabetize the vegetables in our pantry. And that's true. You know, it's, I like things very orderly. I think it just makes you so much more efficient. I think a key to it, though, is in, and I'm sure you've experienced this in your career, Andy, in life, personal life and in careers, I think that we are surrounded by people who define success for us. Hmm. They have their metrics. Um, We'll play a game. If I'm a tenured faculty member, if you had to guess the most important thing that impacts my ability to get tenured get pay raises, get accolades from my boss, what would you guess? If I didn't know you, I would say research, publish research. That's the answer that you always hear, right? It's the answer. That is the number one thing that for 31 years I face at the end of the year is I have to have published a certain amount, but that's not what fuels me. I love bringing in information from a hundred different sources, and doing it in a way that impacts students enough that they would write me these letters behind me. And I know it may seem vain that I would put these up on my wall, Mm. but I do it because that's my metric. If I'm getting measured by research, but it's not what is fueling me, I do the research, but I surround myself 
with reminders of why I love teaching. They're everywhere in my office. They're, I have a bucket next to me. Oh my gosh. These are awesome. And so I think that that is a tool I use to remind myself of even on a day I get tired or feel stressed, that that's what my goal is, is to reach a student in a way that's going to open some doors for them. Wow. So you're not publishing research, you're publishing students. I mean, you're putting out <laughs> well-developed students as part of your output. Um, but I'll say I publish my research. I am well, tenured yeah, yeah. and promoted. We have to do that. And I've had an excellent on my research metric every year except for two in 31 years. So yeah. I'm serious about that, but yeah, yeah. it's not my heart. And no, so no. I have to, I have to be intentional about surrounding yeah. myself with things that remind me. Yes. Of this. That's, that is, that is so good. I mean, I, I think what I've tried to do is learn a little bit from the younger generations around how they think. I mean, I've tried to pick up a few things there too. And mm -hmm. to say, okay, if, if I'm going to play that game, then I'm going to find five or six hat. What are my personal hashtags, right? So if it's leadership, if it's mm -hmm. uh, creativity, if it's customer centricity, I just have a, a small handful. And then instead of searching, because I think we spend so much time, wasted time mm -hmm. searching when we should be scouting. And those are two different things. And mm -hmm. so if you're scouting and you know these five things are important to me for the next six months or year, then you can set up tools to go do all of that. So it comes to you on the topics mm -hmm. that you really care about. And you're not sitting there scrolling through websites and, and searching and, and learning how to do that. And then structure your time so that you put those things in a place, like, like, I, like you said, mm -hmm. it's organization, right? So then put them in a place where 25% of my time I'm going to be scouting, 25% sifting, which means mm -hmm. go through what I've found, maybe once a week on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, pick the things that I really want to care about, then I go into slaying, which is, this is the time to produce and make that work. And then the lastly is serving, is how do I then use this new information to serve others? And if I could keep that in some balanced quadrants, I won't be lost if I've got downtime just, you know, starting to flip through and scroll for things that, um, but it's much more intentional. And if I think my advice to anyone is just find a framework, whatever works for you, to be intentional about mm -hmm. your time. And I love the fact that you're super organized. I am at some level too, because I think it does free you up to not be all over the place and then uh, have a note-taking system that gets you somewhere when you need it. And I think, um, of course, I am not as accomplished as you, but I love that oh. our answers are both process-oriented. So yep. in my class, I have a very specific process that I follow. Every August, I send out a survey to executives to ask them what we should be covering for marketing majors. Um, it goes around the world. I have stra virtual wow. strangers with no ties to Walton that answer my survey. I'm sure you've answered the yeah. survey yeah, yeah. in the past. And then I have an advisory board of 15 executives who help me manifest that the survey results into weekly readings. And yep. so every Friday I'm receiving readings from people like Rich Lawrence yeah. and um, a lot of my former students who are living around the world. They send me readings on a Friday on the topic for the next week. And so I, I have a, yeah. a calendar. I sift through those. I know that Saturday and Sunday are my days yeah. to go through those readings. I assign yeah. them on Monday. I love that my students 
can't really do things in advance because often in the workplace, no, you, you don't, don't know what's hitting you on yeah. Monday. Yeah. So on Monday, I give them their readings for the week. We discuss them in class. And then we have eight different aspects of the class that layer over that eight different um, mm. activities. At the end of the semester, we debrief and my students tell me what their favorite was and what their least favorite was. I either mm. drop the least favorite or um, they work with me to see if it's worth tweaking and modifying and trying it again for another semester. So these things are in my 16 week calendar. I call my class managed chaos, but the emphasis is on the managed on my yeah. part. Students may see it as chaos, but it's a great bridge to the working I, I love that. And let's go to one more topic area quickly. And that mm -hmm. is um, what you described in terms of process. I live to the only way I could be effective at Walmart and asked in the UK, given this size organization, how much was coming at you, you had to build process for mm -hmm. just your daily life. And so I knew probably six months out what my Monday was going to look like uh, every week, right? Because you, you, it's the only way to do it that way. But when I left, uh, became an entrepreneur again, um, all the processes were no good. And, you know, you start from scratch. And I think the most unnerving part of that last year of, before I started to where I'm at right now was reinventing processes without the institutional framework of that context of process and where it's going to be delivered. So when you've got a blank sheet to look at and building process, I had to go back and build processes for that, which I never thought I would. Uh, in order to to progress, then chase mm -hmm. down a bunch of rabbit trails, which gets into the question, I guess, the area of the difference between a corporate world and an entrepreneurial world. And, you know, students that – I'd love to know, first of all, of your student base, could you take a guess on how many have ambitions to be an entrepreneur versus working in the corporate world? And then um, – any advice on for those that want to live in an, an entrepreneurial space, just how different that may be than what the spaces they've been living in? Right. In the past, I would have said it was 90-10 corporate. But wow. as our entrepreneurial ecosystem has changed in Northwest Arkansas and they've seen what could be accomplished through entrepreneurship, I've seen a dramatic shift in that. And I think it's a big part of why I structure my class the way I do. At the very beginning of the semester, I ask them, what is your goal? I have seniors. If yeah. in your dream world, what would you be doing? And then I look at their answers and I pick my guest speakers based on those answers. So that might be Jesse Lane, who started yeah. his own company. Or if it's corporate, um, it, then Jeff Metzner. Mm -hmm. And so I'll handpick these guest speakers or alter my corporate projects to meet what each specific class is saying at the outlay of the class. But more and more, I'm seeing entrepreneurship. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm hearing that too. And I guess the thing that I would advise on that is um, I, I don't advise students coming out to go straight into being an entrepreneur. I just right. think the, that is a tough, usually they have a romantic idea about entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And the, the pragmatic side of that can be really challenging because mm -hmm. you do have to have an experience base. You're pushed across so many different areas that if they go, would rather see them go work, first of all, honestly, into a corporate or larger company to learn the dynamics uh, mm -hmm. of so many different areas and then join a smaller company that is more entrepreneurial. 
before taking that final leap. And maybe that's just my bias because that's the path I took of taking nine years at Proctor and and getting some apprenticeship under me, um, mm-hmm. which I think was super helpful for being an entrepreneur. But it is a different world. And I, I worry sometimes they they jump into it just a little too soon, um, not appreciating how hard that job is. Right. Especially from a process point of view. If you yeah, are exactly. lucky enough to work for a company that is very process oriented and you can see firsthand the benefit of that in a more chaotic organic entrepreneurial system. I think that that's something that uh, a skill set you could carry with you that would could be leveraged. Yeah, I, I think so. I also think there's a lot of entrepreneurial small companies that are not disciplined in process. Mm-hmm. And so if you were to join them, you're not going to learn um, the things you might mm-hmm. learn in a bigger company about process, because I do think successful entrepreneurs do think about process quite a bit. Uh, yes. There's opportunistic entrepreneurs that are just, you know, moving to the next thing that they see in front of them. And that doesn't always lead to good training and development mm-hmm. um, as you're chasing opportunities. And so I, I think it really depends upon, you know, you, you almost like have to interview for that. Like you almost have to ask, learn how to ask questions to get a real sense. Is this a learning culture? Do they believe in repeatable processes? Do they put them down? Do they create discipline? Because I I think you can only get scale, real scale out of a a repeatable process you can teach and grow people into. And I learned that early on in the building of Thompson Murray and Saatchi X those days where we were growing exponentially. And if you, we were going 20% a year. And if you weren't growing 20% a year, then you were falling behind. And you can't just expect people to do that through osmosis. You have to build processes in to be very intentional. Um, And people think that processes are anti-entrepreneurial. I don't think so. I think it's very enabling for an entrepreneur. Yes. And I would say that, to clarify my earlier remarks, I definitely was not implying that process and entrepreneurship don't go together. It's that I think that if you throw a new student into an entrepreneurial setting with so much going on that I think it might be hard for them to see the importance of process. Yes. Unless you have somebody like yourself that's laying it down and reinforcing it. But um, you're a thousand percent correct. Yeah, I I agree with you for the same reasons, because entrepreneurship and, and being in the game, you are so going so fast. So you don't really have time to slow down and teach and develop mm-hmm. people as much as you would in other places or want to. But, uh, okay, well, wow, we've covered a lot of topics. Anything that we didn't talk about that's on your mind that's important to you and what you see coming up? I'm going to pause and look yeah. at my We can notes. edit. One second. Okay. Um, I think really the only thing I'd like to add, and you can edit it out if it doesn't work, is just um, maybe the question of kind of my personal goals that I have. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. I'll jump in on that now. Mm -hmm. So Molly, as you look to the future and what's happening uh, in front of you, I'd love to hear two things, uh, some of your personal goals that you're trying to accomplish. And then secondly, in this time of chaos and uncertainty, what brings you hope? Right. Well, I'll answer the second question first, which is, I think that um, most of my hope comes through my faith 
Mm. And just having a complete sort of abiding understanding that I can only control so many things and I just have to hope in the good of others and in the good of life as it unfolds. And having that hope really takes some stress away from the day to dayness um, of of it. I think that I also just have hope in the future. I look at my students Mm -hmm. and I know that people love to bash college students. I find my students to be articulate and inquisitive. They have, they rise to the occasion every time. Mm. And I feel great about the future of the workforce. And, um, and I'm very proud of what a Rapert marketing hashtag, you know, might mean as they carry that forward to their jobs. I think that when I look at sort of what I personally want, it's twofold. I really want to make sure that as I round out my career, that I'm giving my students three key messages every day. I want them, when they think of me, to think of somebody that walks in every day that couldn't possibly be happier than to be with them. I want them to see my smile, to feel valued and known during a time of such uncertainty and isolation. I think that's become even um, more important. I really want to stress to them the importance of holding on to your own definition of success. I've seen so many students who let their spouses or their families or their mm. coworkers mm. lay pressure on that definition. And if they can become confident in what is important to them, physically surrounding themselves with it as reminders, I, I want them to take that from my class. And then Last, I have this great quote by Miller Williams. Um, I put it up behind the seat that my students sit in so that I never, ever miss it. And it just talks about having compassion for everyone you meet, even if they seem like they don't see it, because we have no way of knowing the challenges that they're bringing in. So on the personal side, I'm really hoping to stay true to that every day. On the professional side, My goal is a lofty one, and I've never said this goal out loud except to my husband. But bring it, Andy Murray. Bring it. We live in a world where research rules everything in my industry, particularly endowed chairs, merit raises, and I work for the best leadership team that I've ever worked for, and that the best leadership team that I think exists in higher academics. Matt Waller, Anna Larry Kelly, Brent Williams. Alan Elstrand, irreplaceable. But I think if I could retire knowing that we have endowed chairs in teaching, I don't mean for me, but I mean an endowed chair that says we value this. This is tangible evidence that this is important to the U of A. I think that's something we could do to be a leader in our industry. And I love it. Wrong message. So that's my bucket list of something that I am gathering information on and pushing in hopes that on the day I retire, we can announce that we have an endowed chair for an up and coming professor that loves the classroom. 
I love it. Well, you know I'm about big quests, not little ones. And this is definitely, I understand your environment and in terms of the academic envir environment in total. And uh, it is, it is a, that would be a big shift. It, that is a it big would. shift and that would be a big quest to go after and definitely something worthy. Um, it's you know, hard to go ahead. Hard to explain how controversial that is. No, that's a big statement. That's it's, a big statement. But that is, uh, that's my goal. I don't have I a specific it. person in mind, but there's going to be somebody that comes up that yep. is good at research, but their heart is fueled by teaching. Yes. And I want Walton College to be the one to make that statement. I, I love it. I mean, I, I think it's so important to have uh, people enter the workforce that are whole and can mm -hmm. um, be present. And I think you teach people to be present because you're always present. Mm -hmm. I mean, no matter how chaotic things can get, uh, and it can, I always get the sense from your students and from you that you're very present in the environment and people feel that they feel that presence you're not distracted um you're there and i think just if if more people leave rapert marketing with that ability to be present because they have faith because they're not cynical they're not distracted they're fully engaged boy could they change the world and so uh i love it well i do have the world's best job at exactly the place i want to be my names are my name is on this sidewalk yeah jimmy's and jimmy and i have kids that went to school here yeah. i've had 31 years here i it would be an embarrassment if i didn't walk into the classroom with a smile because it is yeah. as good a job as there will ever be in the world I really enjoyed my conversation with Molly. What I appreciate most about her approach in working with her students is her investment in them as individuals. At a time when most academics are incentivized to produce great research, which she does, she goes beyond the curriculum to teach the mindset you need to be an effective leader in today's uncertain, unpredictable world. Thank you, Molly, for your inspirational leadership. That's it for this episode of It's a Customer's World. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I'd be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's a Customer's World podcast is a product of the University of Arkansas Customer-Centric Leadership Initiative and a Walton College original production.